Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Afghanistan, the withdrawal continues, but there's a warning about the Taliban influence post-2014. One region to another will be very different one to another, so it'll be an uneven process. The British military presence in Africa continues to rise as Nigeria seeks to free schoolgirls and women on the front line. Britain moves to catch up with some of its NATO allies. The drawdown from Afghanistan continues, with British troops closing their last outpost in Helmand province almost 13 years after the Afghan war began. It leaves Camp Bastion as the only British base in Helmand. As 2015 fast approaches, the Taliban has again threatened a summer campaign, while senior MPs have warned about the long-term threat of insurgents in Afghanistan. Well, joining us from Camp Bastion is our reporter, Sally Lockwood, who spent time at the last outpost, Sturga 2. Hello, Sally. A significant step towards complete combat withdrawal, wasn't it? That's right, Kate. At its peak, there were 137 small British bases like this dotted around Helmand province, and Sturga 2 was the last outpost left until its closure just a few days ago. It was kept on until now because it had a unique vantage point on, on a hilltop overlooking the Helmand River and the surrounding region. It was four Scots who were there on this extended tour, and they were at Sturga for around eight months. I went to stay with them in their final days to see them airlifting out what they could in terms of people and equipment before they finally packed up the last few things and drove their convoy back to Camp Bastion. The officer commanding them for the duration of their tour was Captain Ed Chalice, and he spoke to me about the challenges of keeping his guys protected right up until the end as they were pulling everything down. We are quite vulnerable being out on a sort of uh, on, on a hillside um, with no uh, good roads coming right to us. We are easily supported by helicopters and things like that. The guys have been kept on high alert, and that's sort of one thing that becomes very difficult, especially. When, when there hasn't been an incident, um, but the four Scots lads have just stayed on top of their game. Absolutely professional. It's been a really, real privilege, um, not only to, to come and command the recce platoon, but then to see them over this extended period of time work hard right to the bitter end. Uh, it's, you know, it's an absolute relief uh, to leave now, but then with also that sense of pride of what we've achieved here. And Sally, conditions have got quite a steer for them towards the end. What was it like there? Well, they were living with the very bare basics, Kate. Anything that wasn't essential had essentially been flown out. So they were sleeping under ponchos. Some were even sleeping in the open air, which proved interesting when a fierce sandstorm came in on the first night that I was there. There was virtually no shelter and very little shade from the sun during the day. But also, I must add, very little complaint. They were down to dry rations and, and washing with bottled water. You know, it was back mm. to the basics of life at a patrol base as it was several herricks ago. But bearing in mind the four Scots guys had been there since well before Christmas on an extended eight, nine month tour and they'd had snow in the winter and were then now packing up the base in temperatures, pushing well into the 40s. So I think it's safe to say that with the base now successfully and, and safely closed, they're ready for home. Here's Highlander Ross Cunningham. The winter was horrific to be honest, it was, it was freezing um, a lot colder than I'd anticipated last tour I'd done was a summer tour, but the guys are great we couldn't have had a better platoon to be honest we've been we've lucked out with that, it's really good the boys out here, that's, that's the main thing 
And as Ross said there, Kate, the guys at Sturger 2 really were a brilliant team and a great bunch of characters. I imagine that's fairly essential when you're living at a tiny remote base for eight months and have to entertain yourselves. And you may have seen the Pharrell Williams video they made dancing to his track Happy. It went viral. I remember seeing it online before I came out here. So it was really great to meet some of the guys who've now become internet stars all the way from Sturger 2. And I've been delighted to see some of their faces now back around Bastion as they're back here safely. Uh, There's been a few haircuts by the looks of things since they've been back and I'm sure they're happy to see a proper shower again. Just a couple of weeks left for them here and they'll be flying home their long tour finally over but for British troops still in Helmand they're all now just in one place and that's here Camp Bastion. And Sally on a serious note this week the Commons Defence Select Committee published a report on Afghanistan warning about the threat of the Taliban after withdrawal. What's the feeling over there about that? Well, Kate, the future of exactly what will happen in Afghanistan is, of course, uncertain. But what we do know is that it's a very different country today from the one that British troops saw when they arrived here back in 2001. Afghans now have the power to choose their own future, which they didn't before. And the huge turnout at voting stations for the recent election does show that they are seizing this right and this opportunity. And the focus for British troops here is on ensuring that the Afghan National Security Forces are left as best equipped as possible to overcome any threats from the Taliban after ISAF forces leave. And the signs so far, Kate, are extremely encouraging. All right, Sally Lockwood and Cam Bastian, thank you for that. Well, let's hear more now on that report about the future of Afghanistan. Di Havard is a member of the Defence Select Committee and told us that Britain has done a superb job. We've nationalised their security forces. We've created this space for them. We've created a stability in that region that otherwise might not have been there. They've done really valuable work that is not obviously seen in the day-to-day skirmishing about what's happening in Helmand province. The people who've been in Helmand know it's a distorting mirror. But they've, they've made a fantastic contribution, and some of them have suffered as a consequence. But the withdrawal's not over yet either. We've got some concerns that we actually do that properly. And then there's a continuing security issue. There will still be military people there, but be other people there from other government departments. And that's what we're saying to the Ministry of Defence. You need all your colleagues across government to do this comprehensive approach properly. Our relationship with Afghanistan is not ending, it's changing. And as you make that change and that transition, then you have to support it. But you're supporting valuable work that people have done before and we'll continue to do in the future. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. And positive messages from Afghanistan, but that report was pretty sobering, wasn't it, from the Defence Select Committee? It is sobering, and this week is every example that it should be sobering because of the action of the Taliban. Taliban's going into its summer uh, combat stage at the moment. Um, We're concerned about the Afghan National Army, although it's much better than I think a lot of people imagined it to be, Um, and it's training and it's exercising on its own and it's organising operations on its own. Taliban is not just, you know, Helmand. We've concentrated on Helmand and that area for for so many years now, certainly since 2006. Uh, Taliban's operating throughout Afghanistan. Uh, The next stage will be to bring... Taliban into the political system in its earliest form and that is by dialogue, not actually in positions of power but through dialogue and that is probably the next crucial stage for the Afghan people. And once this new president is in place, whoever that should be, will the Security Pact Agreement allow for greater international influence post-2014 and the settling of things? Well it will allow for guarantees that 
that, for example, the Americans in particular will be allowed to have a set number of uh, troops there. And it also for training and also for mentoring. And if the Afghan National Army is going to continue in the way it's going at the moment, then I think that's particularly important. But if uh, Abdullah, Abdullah the, uh, the, the most likely candidate for president, he said he will sign that document. Uh, briefly, Christopher, some figures on casualties in Afghanistan just out. Yeah, MOD's just released them. It shows that since 2001, the deaths have been 453, killed in action 653. I, I'm interested in particularly the people, that, 51 people who die for the wounds. We quite often forget the people who get wounded and then they die later on. But the most important thing is this figure is actually low over this 10 over a decade period for, for any any conflict like this one of the reasons is because it's got good training good middle management in company commander C- nco uh, levels uh, which at the moment the afghan army does not have all right christopher stay with us as the british military returns home from afghanistan and instability continues in the likes of syria nigeria and eastern europe questions are being asked about where forces will be deployed next this week bfbs spoke to general sir richard barons commander of Joint Forces Command, and he told us that events in Ukraine had caused some concern. It would be wrong to say it's affected our planning, but right to say that it's caught our eye because we can see uh, confrontation there that has raised concerns amongst our NATO partners. Uh, We're very aware of our commitments to Article 5, and we'll, with with our uh, partners uh, in NATO, we'll look very carefully at what this means for the way we might need to train and operate in the future, but it's very early days. I I don't think it's ever been the case that that, uh, anybody has ever really predicted the future. You you can make an assessment of of trends and you can learn the lessons of of history, but the important thing for the armed forces is to be ready for uncertainty. Uh, And I think there are many examples in in our history, both recent and more distant, where we've had to respond to things that absolutely did not uh, appear on any forecast of events. And I would say that in in my own service, all the major things that I've participated in, Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, none of them were foreseen. And and what it, it, it does mean is the armed forces have to be ready to embrace the unexpected and to be able to respond from a broad based set of capabilities. We we will reset our contingent capabilities. So the role of the armed forces to be able to respond principally from bases in the UK to a drama around the world, we'll re-establish that in the shape of a much improved joint expeditionary force. And the second thing I'm confident about is that we will continue to commit to a whole range of engagement activities around the world so we're able to uh, influence, uh, to engage with our partners, to build capacity, to understand the world better. And all of that will be an essential precursor to any future military activity. That was General Sir Richard Barons, Commander of Joint Forces Commander. Christopher, interesting to hear from the General, but not surprising, he says, conflicts are unpredictable. Yeah, uh, if you look uh, at the something like 260, roughly 260 uh, conflicts or operations that British forces have got involved in since the end of Second World War, probably no more than 10 have actually been predicted. Mm. And that is, is quite a score. And now, of course, all t- attention sort of looks at Africa because they're suddenly they're finding places to go to, if not war, but assistance, military assistance to, which they hadn't even considered before. Yeah, I, I mean, remember us talking about Africa. Just tell us a little bit more, I mean, basically predicting that there would be, you were saying at the end of last year, tr- more trouble in Africa. Where does Britain have obligations militarily there? Well, I've counted at the moment active ones, about eight of them. Kenya, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Niger, uh, Ghana, Uganda, Somalia and Malawi. 
Mm. Uh, but that doesn't include uh, agreements that we have with other countries. For example, we have an agreement with France that if France gets into a bit of a pickle, as it did in Mali, that we'll go and help them out by supplying, let's say, uh, logistics, transport, communications, uh, intelligence. So, where, in, for example, at the moment in Nigeria, we're, we're supplying intelligence gathering, uh, intelligence assessment, and we could go further than that by putting special forces in if you need to pull anybody You up. mentioned quite a few countries there. Where do you see the biggest threats? Uh, the biggest threat at the moment is always Nigeria. And Nigeria is a biggest threat, not necessarily actually in Nigeria itself, but because what's going up in the northeast could actually spread into other people, other countries. Boko where Haram, we, Yes, Boko Haram. It could spread, or the consequences of that could spread into in other countries in which we have defence obligations. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, we hear from the new head of the Defence Select Committee. PFBS Sit rep. Women soldiers could soon be allowed to serve in frontline combat roles in the army after a review was brought forward. Currently, women can serve on the front line, but not where the primary aim is to close with and kill the enemy. Defence Secretary Philip Hammond said head of the army, General Sir Peter Wall, would report back by the end of the year. The review was due to take place in 2018. Earlier, we spoke with our reporter, Charlotte Cross, an army reserve officer who served with 3 Commando Brigade in Afghanistan in 2006. I asked her if she'd ever come across a woman who wanted to fight on the front line. Uh, in my experience, no, I haven't. Um, but what I have seen over the years, especially in Afghanistan, is I've seen women who are on the front line, for example, working as medics. I've seen a medic who's lived alongside a very small Gurkha unit in a patrol base for six months, and she's told me she's thoroughly enjoying that experience and enjoying her job. I've been on patrol with female engagement team soldiers who are living and working alongside the rifles and they're out on patrol with them every day, day in, day out, and again, enjoying that job. Mm. But whether or not they would want to be the infantry soldier where their sole purpose is to close and kill with the enemy, I'm not convinced that's something those women would want to be doing. So, Christopher, why is a change to the law actually being considered? Is it just simply the fact that um, the government is considering bringing the army in line with the rest of equal opportunities legislation? It's not just the army. I mean, it is tidying up the equal opportunities legislation, which is why the, uh, the uh, CGS, uh, General Speeder Wall, is going to have to make sure that by the time we get to the next defence review, which is next year, that it will be in the defence review itself, and that is the, the position and the role of uh, women in the, in, in the services. And one of the difficulties of the, the army's got with using this legislation is twofold. One, the army is not quite sure whether or not it's got the authority to actually uh, do this anyway it can possibly do this, and it's certainly women train in frontline. The second part of it is to decide what you call frontline and what frontline duties. So when Charlotte talks about the medics or the uh, somebody taking care of an IED, that's very much frontline soldiering. The mm. difference is, is whether you've got a, a, a personal weapon, you go out to look for somebody to kill. Mm. Charlotte, you were saying before that over and over again you hear the kind of phrase that equal opportunities does not mean that everything is equal. How does that translate into the way that women are trained and assessed? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you're t equal opportunities are about giving people equal opportunities based on their ability and their biology. So in the same way that you don't put a male sprinter against a female sprinter in an Olympic race, 
women don't have to pass fitness tests at the same standard as men do. So the run and the press-ups and the sit-ups are dependent on your sex and your age. Um, and Does that mean there are different standards then when, when women are training within the armed forces? There are different standards, yes. So a woman under the age of 30 has to run a mile and a half in 12 and a half minutes and a man has to do it in 10 and a half minutes. So there is a difference there. Um, sit-ups are fairly equal actually between the sexes because men and women are deemed equally good at doing sit-ups but press-ups women don't have as much upper body strength so um, they do fewer press-ups but the combat fitness test which is the one where you do eight miles carrying um, 15 kilos if you're in certain cat badges or 25 kilos if you're infantry cat badge then that men and women do that alongside each other and together okay um assuming that the law were to be changed assuming that there was a, at least some take up from women for close combat roles how much would that change the culture within the armed forces do you think charlotte well i think especially infantry regiments have built up internal cultures over the many decades that they've existed and i think it might be quite hard for women especially in small numbers to come into those very close-knit very male very sort of um they've got their own way of doing things they've got their own internal culture and the way them pecking orders and things and i think it would be quite hard for a woman to come into that i think women would be accepted over time but i think it would take time charlotte cross talking to us earlier well in 1985 norway became the first country in nato to allow women to serve in all combat capacities including submarines norwegian women are also subject to the draft in the event of a national mobilization well joining us is the uk correspondent for norwegian broadcasting aspen Ors. aspen good to speak to you how well has it all worked in norway then well, it's going very well. Uh, at the moment, we have 2,000 uh, female soldiers who are hoping eventually to end up as part of the special forces uh, of Norway. So the recruitment, recruitment uh, sorry, uh, is going rather well by the looks of things. And uh, um, there's been um, sort of uh, common conception that, uh, that it's also open for, for women along with men. And is there much appetite amongst the women recruits to actually go to the front line for, for combat? Apparently it is, yes. Uh, just before Christmas, uh, we got those, those numbers of all, all the women who wanted to join uh, their own uh, female special forces. We had females serving in uh, Afghanistan uh, and uh, elsewhere, which is good news uh, for uh, for the military as uh, their recruitment uh, basis isn't too, too large in such a small country as Norway. When you say female special forces, is that then the, the, the women are working together with other women exclusively? Yes, uh, the, the training of one female uh, special forces, but of course we have uh, other female soldiers uh, working along uh, with, with men, obviously, from uh, from previous years. Why didn't Norway do it as far back as 1985? Well, partly because of necessity and, and partly because a lot of females wanted to join. Uh, with a population back then of approximately 4 million, uh, they needed special competent uh, personnel and they didn't always find that amongst uh, the men. Uh, they wanted a broader basis and um, in the future um, they, it might be even compulsory uh, for women as well uh, to join uh, the army uh, for a year in their, their sort of early grown-up life. 
Mm. Um, I don't know if you heard uh, Charlotte Cross talking to us just before, but she was talking about the sort of the, ne- the male-dominated environment. And within the British Army, uh, anecdotally, to get, for example, into the parachute regiment, into P Company, you have to do a thing called milling, where, where men are paired up and have to punch each other in the face. Is there anything comparable, rites of passage in the Norwegian Army? Uh, and has that had to change with the inclusion of women? Well, there's been a bit of a debate, because uh, in the text, uh, allowing uh, women to stand along with men, they're absolutely equal in all matters, which means uh, they have to sleep together, share baths together, and so on. And we had uh, a story not too long ago about one uh, female soldier who had to uh, take a bath naked with all her, uh, her male colleagues in rather freezing uh, water um, during an exercise, and uh, that uh, sparked a bit of debate. Is it really possible uh, to have full equality in in the forces? Interesting. Um, this week, Major General Kristen Lund became the first woman to command a UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus. A proud moment for Norway. Absolutely. Although many uh, people said about time, uh, we had competent uh, women in the forces for such a long time, uh, and uh, that it had to go to uh, 2014 before uh, this happened uh, was a bit of a surprise. But uh, she's a well-trained uh, uh, officer. I've uh, had a pleasure of meeting her once uh, myself in the Norwegian Embassy here in London. Um, so I think uh, obviously uh, going to be someone who will be looked uh, upon by uh, coming uh, female uh, personnel in the forces. All right, Aspen Ors, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, time to have a little look at some of the other stories around this week. On Tuesday, it was announced the International Criminal Court will launch a preliminary in examination into allegations of abuse by British military personnel in Iraq. Um, the first time Britain's been the subject of this kind of examination, is it? Uh, no, it, it's not, but it... It, it could be. It uh, could be if it goes through. Um, I mean, the, the British point of view at the moment is that, 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 that there is a... Um, there's an organisation within Whitehall that's looking at the similar sort of things within the British forces, especially Iraq. Yeah. Uh, if that goes through, there would be possibly uh, uh, prosecutions and therefore any international court would stay out of it mm. until the results of that have happened but if they have information which is not used in the British process then they could actually come back and, 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 and launch their own prosecution. Of course the MOD not happy about this at all you wouldn't no, expect them to be would you? No but we signed up to it now mm. Americans for Didn't. example did not sign up to it for this very very reason and they said we're not going to send our troops anywhere that we might find some international court jumping on them at a later date, whereas the British actually signed to do so. All right. Um, well, Defence Secretary Philip Hammond, on another subject, has set out the maritime security strategy this week. In a nutshell, what does the document mean? I think it means quite a lot. Uh, the maritime industry, if you like, uh, is 2% of the British economy. It contributes something like 13, 13 and a half billions to the economy. It pays 18 billions in taxes... But Britain, in nine days, would come to a standstill if the seaborne things that we need, like oil, food supplies, etc., didn't get through. And there you have the beginnings of the uh, maritime strategy, and that's protecting the British society in home waters. But then you have the other side of it, which is the launching of uh, uh, faraway protection, force protection, uh, with a much larger navy. And by the way, at the moment, that looks like it's going on. The important thing is everybody has to sign up for this. Foreign Office, MOD, uh, Transport uh, Ministry, and the Home Office. That's how big it is. It is quite exclusive. This is BFBS. Sit, Rep.
Last week on SITREP, we looked at the race to become the new chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. After several rounds of voting, the chosen one was announced on Wednesday afternoon with Conservative MP Rory Stewart elected. He takes over from James Arbuthnot, who stepped down after nine years in the role. Rory Stewart's spoken with our reporter Toby Sadler about what he expects the biggest challenges to be in the next few years. I think the big role is to ask the big strategic questions. We need to focus on Britain's role in the world, dealing with technology, with new approaches, human rights, drones, terrorism, possibly women in combat roles is going to be an issue coming forward. I think it's a very exciting time and a very difficult time. You're under pressure, I guess, to to toe the party line. How do you you remain neutral and and do your job properly? I've always been very much a cross-party figure. I do a lot with other parties on things like broadband. I've done a lot on the issue of Scotland. And I've worked a lot with other parties on foreign affairs. In a sense, foreign affairs and defence is not really a a party political issue. Let's look at, um, I suppose, specific challenges over the next couple of years. We've got that strategic defence review coming up in 2015. Uh, What do you see as the, the big challenges there? Well, that's the central focus of our committee's work, which is we want to get ahead of the strategic defence review. The biggest challenge in the end is going to be the budget. How much money's been allocated? How's the British economy doing? How much money are we really going to have for defence? It's all very well us writing wish lists, but what practically are we going to do with the funds available? That was Rory Stewart, the new chair of the Defence Select Committee. Christopher, what do we know about this man? Well, the first and foremost, and the most important thing about him, is that uh, he's been around, and he's been around where other politicians don't go around anymore. They come in, they come in as a sort of researcher, then they get a big, you know, an MP. Um, most important thing to my mind, though, is that he doesn't believe there is power in Whitehall except in the Treasury. Mm. And he is totally different from anybody who's around at the moment. And so if there's no power, then there's no responsibility. Um, And therefore, he is going to take this committee in a totally different direction, I think, than we've seen over the past decade. You say he's been around. I mean, he's trekked for 6,000 miles, hasn't he, across Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran. He's done quite amazing things, but um, seems to be able to focus on the the politics of, say, for for example, the finances issue, uh, uh, saying that that's going to be key. How much influence do you think the committee will have under him as the chair? They will have influence in as much that it will make the MOD, I think, have to be much sharper in, in the evidence that they've brought before it. If you go along with this principle that there is, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you've got no power in, in Whitehall, therefore you don't have to respond to anything, uh, you can get away with a lot of things. He's going to say, no, you can't. Prime, prime target will be, where do you get the money from? How much do you get? How do you spend it? Are the people doing it any good? Are they sort of competent or not? And then you have to do, uh, you look at the three services in the normal, normal way. But you don't forget there's a defence review next year mm. and that'll be his first task is to make sure that it's on the right lines. Is it going to be briefly a peaceful panel, do you think, this committee? I, um, do you know, I've got a, I had a bet on, on, on this committee and in fact I didn't get him. But <laughs> I've got two characters who stood and I'm just wondering if one of them may sort of throw his toys hmm. and say, I'm not staying. Hmm. And that's, that'll be good fun. But it needs cleaning out, that committee. It is not very cerebral at all, I tell you. And the MOD has an easy ride with it. All right, um, let's just, uh, before we go today, talk about uh, an interesting development on a story we've touched on before, the tightening of the US Army's regulations on tattoos. It's led to a surge in demand with tattoo parlours near bases working around the the clock to actually cope with it. These rules basically ban tattoos on arms and legs if you can see them when a soldier's wearing short sleeves and shorts. But um, those done before this ban kicks in are allowed. So there you go, there's the rush. Uh, Christopher, we have talked about this before. Um, Not surprising, really, that soldiers are 
rushing to get these tattoos done. No, but I tell you, the, the Americans, um, about 18 months ago, there was a debate going along in the Senate. It was a sort of Easter debate, and nobody's taking much notice of it. It became a big thing, and it's this. The tattoos had gone up the neck, clean-shaven heads. Uh, the arms are totally tattooed. The Americans going in some like Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., were starting to look like something out of a Spielberg uh, movie. And this is, bothered, is that, a, is that no, a real problem, really? Yeah, no, seriously, it, it, is a, it is a problem. As far as this, uh, the Senate was concerned, they was uh, certain senators were saying, "Look, listen, this is not the image. This is not the clean cut we've come to rescue you." Image. This is almost a sort of stripped to the, uh, you know, wearing a singlet, going in armed to the teeth. This is not the sort of army image we're, we, we, we particularly want. And that's how the whole thing started. But what, what's in it too? Because I, I, I can imagine that within the military community, an awful lot, because there's a sense of ownership, of identity. Ex- I mean, I'm, I'm quoting just from someone who doesn't wear one myself, but I mean... That's not what I hear. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, the, I suppose the, the band, does it really make sense when it seems to make so much, see, see the rush? Uh, it, it does, because the Americans really want to clean up their, their, their armed forces. Don't forget, this is part of a whole thing which says um, bad news in, in, in the prisoner of war camps, uh, bad treatment of, of, of mm. other soldiers, bad treatment of, of, of women soldiers in, and RAF, or sorry, Air Force soldiers, Air Force uh, people in, in America. It's a part of it, but this one thing is image of the barbarian with all the tattoos. They want to get rid of it. I mean, the, people were going in from 101 uh, Air Force to Air, Air Division with tattoos on their faces. They said, enough's enough. Mm, and enough is enough from us today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chobo, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.